Hello, folks. This is your host, Tammy Tucky, and you are now listening to the Tierra Talk Show. We bring you rare interviews with the makers of Disney magic. Whether they be singers, actors, imagineers, animators, they have all made their mark on the Disney name. Be sure to check out the show notes, other episodes, contests, our social media pages from Facebook to Twitter, and more on our official website at www.thetierratalkshow.com. Are you looking to plan and book an upcoming Disney vacation? Contact the Tierra Talk Show's official travel agent, James from Destinations in Florida, by visiting destinationsinflorida.com backslash tiara for a free quote. The link is also included in the show notes on our website. All guest opinions are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent the opinions of the Tierra Talk Show or the host. The Tierra Talk Show is not associated with the Disney Company. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. And from all of us here at the Tierra Talk Show, have a hoop-de-doo day. I'm excited to welcome this week's Tierra Talk Show guest, producer Randall Fulmer, to the show. Welcome, Randall. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be with you. It's been 15 years since The Emperor's New Groove has come out, and I remember getting it on DVD, and they had these really cool behind-the-scenes featurettes, and that's where I first saw you and, and, and found out more about you and then working for the Disney company. So it's pretty crazy I get to talk to you now, 15 years later, since that DVD came out. So thank you so much for coming on the show to talk today. I really appreciate it. So I was just going to say, I'm as shocked as you are that it was 15 years ago. Time really flies. That was, a, that was a rather crazy adventure and a lot of fun to make, and, and it doesn't seem like it was that long ago that we were making it. It doesn't feel like it's been that long since 2000, but I first wanted to talk about your beginnings working for the Disney company because you worked as an effects animator. Which you worked on Who Framed Roger Rabbit first was, I think, the first Disney project you worked on, correct? It was. It was. I, I actually got to know Mark Dindle, who's the director on The Emperor's New Groove. He was an effects animator also, so... The two of us worked at a couple of studios, and then he was going to head up the effects department on Little Mermaid. And so he said, hey, I've got this job, you know, I'll get you into Disney and you can work on Little Mermaid. And so Roger Rabbit was just um, something that I got to work on while waiting for Little Mermaid to get going. And so that was a, a lot of fun to work on Roger Rabbit as well. What what are the responsibilities of an effects animator, and, and and can you point out scenes in the film that you definitely know? That's one of the scenes I got to work on. Um, an effects animator is basically animating anything that moves that's not a character. So it could be fire, it could be ocean surfaces, like a Little Mermaid. I did eight million billion bubbles, storms, lightning, and then shadows, shadows to the characters. So the animator is just doing the character itself, but, but you're trying to place the characters in an environment. And, you know, if something blows up, any explosion, dust storm, anything that goes on that's, that's uh, in movement, but, but not the character. So there's a lot. That, that's covering a lot of scenes in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, especially since it's live action and animation mixed together in one oh. in the film. It, it was the most amazing thing to work on that film. That, to me, uh, and to everybody that was working on it, we were like so excited to work on that because it was the first time to us that that uh, animation really got married into a live action frame and really looked like it was it was really there on the set with the real characters. 
Before then, it had kind of looked flat, like a cartoon that, yeah, got overlaid onto a live-action plate, but it didn't really look like it was real. But there was so much lighting and shadowing and colored lighting, you know, so so much that, that made each uh, character fit into the environment. So anyway, it was it was kind of, it was dumb luck that I got to work on Roger Rabbit while waiting for Little Mermaid. And I'm really happy that I did. I, I worked on the Toontown section. That was uh, Dale Bear headed that up, who was, uh, who was the animator for Pacha. And so you, you end up, you, you continue to work with the same people over and over, which is really nice. With another project you worked on, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, that was one of the first Disney films along with Lion King where there's more CGI used for the crowd scenes and that type of thing. And you're, you're an artistic coordinator on this film. There's a difference here because you're not working on the effects anymore. So when you're a coordinator, what exactly are you working on during this film and other films? Well, you, you brought up um, the computer component in that. One of the things that was happening at that time was that, that we we're starting to realize that we could do, like on Lion King, we could do the wildebeest herd with, with um, it started out with hand animation, but then was, was transferred into computer animated groups where you could have thousands of wildebeests instead of three. And, uh, but, up and down, um, there's sort of an, um, I don't want to call it an assembly line, but it is in a way where where storyboard people are in the beginning and they're thinking up ideas and then the scene goes to animators and it goes to effects and eventually to the layout department to design the sets and to the background painters. And if you, if you don't kind of visualize where you're going to use computer and where you're going to do it all with hand animation, you, you have to, you have to, sort of like go up and down the line and, and explain to everybody what kind of scene uh, it's going to be so that people people know and can figure out, you know, without working yourself into a jam, what, what's going to be computer and what isn't. And, and um, these scenes that we work on, I don't know, in an average feature, there's something like 1,300 scenes. And some of them get unbelievably complicated. So, some scenes take a year and a half to do um, for everyone to do their particular component. And if you don't, if you don't kind of strategically plan out and notify everybody what's coming down the line and how to prepare for it, and um, you can just have a real big mess. So that, that was my job for a couple of pictures um, on Lion King and on uh, Hunchback Notre Dame. I just ran around all day long and communicated back and forth with people and, tried to understand the concept of each scene and then tell each department what they were going to be doing and how, how to prepare for each scene. Now let's go a little bit back to what we were talking about in the beginning with Emperor's New Groove, 15th anniversary. Yeah. So I didn't even get to properly say happy anniversary. So happy anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a wonderful <laughs> anniversary to celebrate. I'm so glad that we that we were having you on the show. Again, yeah. this project started as something different. It started as Kingdom of the Sun, and, and a lot of listeners know we've talked about this before. A documentary called The Sweatbox came out about how the process changed from Kingdom of the Sun to Emperor's New Groove. When did you finally start working on this project, or were you at it from the beginning? I was there from the very beginning with uh, Roger, Roger Ellers and um, the Kingdom of the Sun portion. And what, what a lot of people, I mean, what, what, the sweat box 
sort of documents is that when you're when you're going about making a film and you're trying to do an original film, in other words, you're not trying to just do, you know, like borrow from the story ideas of another film and say, hey, let's do that exact same plot. You know, you're trying to do something original. And when you launch off on a project to do something original, you sometimes run into real dead ends where you're you're putting up the, the the film in storyboard form and you're screening it for executives and everybody's looking at it and you're going, wow, this isn't very good or it's not very funny or the story doesn't make sense or it's confusing. And you you really have to think on your feet and try to keep thinking, okay, what is it that's working here? What is it that's working that we can save and maybe make even better and what is it that's not working that we need to throw out? And that process, it takes about five years to do a film at Disney. And that process goes on every day for five years. You're, the, the thought that you write a script and you have this perfect idea and then you make it, that doesn't ha- it doesn't happen that way at Disney. You, you start with a, an outline and some rough ideas and then you start developing it and you start getting characters and you start getting voice talent and things. And the, what happened with kingdom of the sun, there were just many, many characters and many ideas. And the the studio started feeling like, okay, you got way too many ideas here. It needs to be simplified. You, You need to like start over in a way and go in a whole different direction. So, that's what we did. And we, uh, Roger segued off the project because it didn't make much sense for him to stay on the project at that point. Cause it was a completely different story and a completely different take. It was a comedy. And so people that watch that process from outside of Disney can go, Oh my gosh, that's the craziest thing I ever saw. You, you guys are, uh, you, you don't know what you're doing. And at sometimes we don't know what we're doing. That's the risk that you take um, creatively when you're trying to do something great. So anyway, it started out as one thing. It went for two or three years. Uh, we used Yzma. We used the basic um, Cusco. Cusco became the main character rather than um, you know a minor character. John Goodman and Pacha came along. It was still in South America. You know, it, there was there were cultural references, but but it, it evolved into quite a different thing. And I think you use certain ideas as a springboard to, to come up with other ideas. And uh, that's what we did. From what I saw from the sweat box, because there were many clips posted online, for me, I had never really known how difficult of a process it was. You really never know until you actually participate or work on it. So for yeah. me as an outsider, being able to see you all of you worked so hard to to really make a great story and and I and and it was very interesting to see how things changed it's not easy yeah. and and I, and I have to say kudos to you for for really you know turning out a great film it was real I love Emperor's New Groove and and I love how a, a minor character in the original Kingdom of the Sun uh, Soupy, if I'm saying his name right, uh, makes an appearance in the Emperor's New Groove dinner scene between Kronk Yzma and Cusco. He's the little ornament in the middle of the table for listeners who are going to yeah, yeah. go back and watch it. I loved how he made an appearance. That was really cool. <laughs> well, there, believe me, there are gut checks along the way when when you're when you're right in the middle of the swirl of trying to make something happen and the studio 
everybody wants it wants a hit. They want a great movie. They want it to be funny. They want it to be entertaining. You know, everybody wants the same thing. Emperor's New Groove coming out of something that was very different. In a way, it seems like that was a crazy thing. But I can tell you, Lion King was the same way. Beauty and the Beast was the same way. Every, every just about every movie I've ever worked on, you have that moment where if you're going to make it great, you have to really take a look at what you've got. And and there's a, a saying about you have to be able to let go of your darlings, you know, because there's some components that you love, but they don't quite fit in the story anymore. And you have to let slay your darlings and you have to, you know, uh, come up with, a, with uh, the best ideas and move on. And, and some of those components that you had to remove from Emperor's New Groove uh, especially with Sting, who was writing the songs to Kingdom of the Sun, which for listeners who would like to listen to some of these songs, if you go on iTunes, the album of Emper- Emperor's New Groove is on there. There's a couple of songs on the actual album from Kingdom of the Sun, which I'm so glad there yeah. are because they're fantastic. We have Eartha Kitt singing S- Snuff Out the Light and also Sting singing yeah. uh, One Day She'll Love Me, the love song originally in Kingdom of the yeah. Sun, which is actually yeah, yeah. one of my favorites. Yeah. I can't stop listening to that. I, I It's beautiful. But with Sting, uh, of course, he he wrote the song Perfect World and also My Funny Friend and Me. I love both of them, too. It's so much fun. And you mentioned in, uh, I think, a behind-the-scenes featurette that um, he wrote a letter to the creative team and you um, about the ending of the film, which was a little bit different regarding Cusco and the village. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, Sting is a super environmentalist and... uh and at some point it seemed like Cusco was going to turn everything into some giant water park. And, you know, there are lots of ideas that you have. You, you try different ideas. And then at some point somebody goes, Hey, you know what? That's not a, that's not a great message. Uh, usually you want your character to go on some kind of an arc where he's misbehaving at the beginning, but at some point he learns something and applies that knowledge and the world becomes a better place. It seemed like Cusco had been to hell and back. He'd been through all kinds of things. And yet, if he just decides to set up a glorified water park in the end, it's sort of like, well, wait a minute, did he really learn anything? Or is he just still being the selfish brat that he started out the movie to be? So Sting wrote that letter. And uh, I remember Roy Disney's uh, had the exact same thought. And we had the same thought. So it, 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 when Sting sent that letter, we, you know, we just, all agreed, yes, and so we we made some changes uh, to to make the the, the film more uh, mainly that Cusco uh, there was family at the end there was something reasonable and and the village life went on as it was without being ruined by a giant water park. And it ends with my funny friend and me playing out the film, which is kind of the description of the relationship between Pacha and Cusco. Which, you know, watching it again, I love looking at character development for films. So, you know, looking uh-huh. at this relationship, seeing it now again, it to me, it's like one of the, I'd, I'd say one of the top three best Disney relationships. Because don't we all look for someone like Pacha who is loyal uh, and grounded. really cares about his family, is grounded. It's really interesting to see how these two play off of each other and, and against another yeah. partnership with Yzma and Kronk. It's like two different partnerships, two different partnerships that you get to see. And I love that. So I would love to at some point, it's on my bucket list, try to be a voice actor in a film at some 
some point. I've heard it's, it's actually really difficult because it usually goes on for a span of two, three years sometimes because, you know, there's always different types of sessions and you never know what's going to be used, not used. So when you're working with Eartha Kitt, John Goodman, David Spade, you're working with them separately. They're not in the same room at the same time at all and it's all different types of sessions. You know, what is that creative process like for you? Some some actors are way more comfortable with that way of, of working than others. Um, occasionally, we, we would get a couple of actors together, and and because they, you know, they play off of each other. There's a lot of improv that goes on. But sometimes recording them discreetly without having the other person bleed into what their re- recording is gets really tricky. So for the most part, it works best to do the actors one at a time. And you really, you have to do a lot of explaining because maybe they haven't been in for three or four months and you've had really major changes in the story and even major changes in how the character is uh, in the film. And you have to go back and re-record some things with sort of a different tone to them. And uh, some actors get a little impatient with that because it feels like, wait a minute, you know, this is Groundhog Day. We're doing the same thing. Really? We're going to do this again? And you're like, yeah, we're going to do it again. Well, they're just a little bit different. And, um, yeah, you, you just have to, you have to you bring artwork to the recording session and you bring some um, tape of what, what the voice sounded like the last time they were there. Sometimes they've done a bunch of different acting things and they have to be, they have to get their head back into how was their voice sounding exactly and try to mimic that so they're the same character again. Um, it's tricky. You record a lot of material in the beginning, and then as time goes on, sometimes you're having them come into a recording session just to pick up two or three lines. It was the first time for a few of these actors doing something like this. So what was it like to work with each of them individually? Well, John Goodman is like the consummate pro. He also, um, I remember with him, he would have a, he would really do a lot of thinking about each line, and then he would deliver it in a couple of ways. Um, with Eartha Kitt, she was like, we had total crazy fun with her, and she would, she would, she liked to be really over the top. She, she would just push things and, you know, be crazy. And um, David Spade, he was much more, I mean, his humor is very much more deadpan and subdued. And um, sometimes it's like you're thinking, we need more excitement out of him. But that's not really where his humor comes from. It's more of a a snide sort of, um, he didn't get too involved in anything. He's got to be cool, you know. As a character, he um, oftentimes is not is playing characters that aren't that likable. And with, with Cusco, we had to take him from this arc where he was a complete jerk, you know, a, a complete self-centered, it's all about me guy, and have him learn lessons and become likable. And, um, and it, 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 when you're playing with um, someone like David Spade that's known to be snide and known to be sarcastic, um, it becomes a trick to turn him around and make it believable. I mean, anybody can say really nice things, but if it doesn't come across as authentic, you're sitting there thinking, wait a minute, that's not something David Spade would say. You know, you, you have to 
you have to build the character into something believable, like when he makes his turn and really starts understanding how selfish he's been. Uh, it has to be believable. And, and then the animation has to work with the voice and all those things. And yeah, I think in the end, that the Cusco character became something that David Spade is really proud of uh, because it really works, you know? It's a, it's a great character. And I think when you, when you hire some of these voice talent, I think the, the real trick that you learn after a while is there's a reason why you get a David Spade or an Eartha Kitt or John Goodman because they have a certain thing that they're known for. And if you, if you try to push them too far out of their comfort zone, it, it doesn't work. So you have to really pretty much like what it is that they do. Um, and John Goodman is an example. He's just a really warm human being. He's an authentic guy. He's, he is genuine. And the genuine quality that is John Goodman comes across in his voice. You just hear one sentence from him and you believe him because he, he is you know, that quality is just there in his voice. So sometimes you, you learn to keep your mouth shut and just let them do things. And uh, you give little suggestions when they're looking for it, but um, you leave them alone too a lot. And, and uh, you give them the basic idea of the scene, but then you allow them to sort of make it their own. And so you worked as a producer in Emperor's New Groove and also Chicken Little. And then uh, you left the Disney company around, I think it was 2006. And you are now making and creating guitars. I find this fascinating. You don't really hear a lot about the creation of of guitars rather than a lot of people like to play them. So what is this business like to run for you? I I worked with 300 animators at a time at people, you know, working on the film at, at a time for five years at a time. And now I'm working, I'm building these guitars a hundred percent by myself. <laughs> so it, the, the pendulum has swung about as far as it can swing and they're custom based guitars. I work with individual customers and I make them a hundred percent myself. And I have, uh, I build 30 of them a year is my, my limit. Um, they're, they're high end guitars. I have very high-end customers, and uh, I have a, a waiting list that's now almost three years. It's two and a half years waiting list. And I, yeah, I started building guitars when I was 12 years old. So I, I, I eventually went to Cal Arts and decided I wanted to do animation, and I had built a lot of guitars when I was a kid. And I thought, well, I'll probably never do that again. And then I just got to a point after I'd been at Disney 18 years, and I just thought, you know what, I've that's a long time. That's like being born and going all the way through high school. I, I think I've done this long enough. I'm, I'm going to go and, and do something else. And uh, I eventually thought, you know, it'd be fun to get back into building guitars. Uh, I know a lot more now, uh, and I, I can do a really refined, better job. And I thought it would just kind of putter along and make a few here and there. And I did one guitar show, the Nam show, and I took 20-some guitars, and I sold all of them in a weekend, and I had enough orders at the end wow. of that weekend for a year. So it, it took off, like, in a crazy way. Uh, and there's, a, there's actually a documentary on, on the first few years of my getting this business started called Restrung. And um, that documentary was made by a Canadian filmmaker who's an incredible filmmaker, and he, 
he came down on a number of occasions and covered uh, different uh, groups that uh, I've made guitars for and came to my shop. And I've also made uh, 15 videos that are on YouTube of how I build a bass guitar. So um, I thought if I'm doing this all by myself and I'm not mentoring anyone, a good thing to sort of give back would be to, to record, you know, my basic uh, approach to building bases and put it on YouTube. So any, anybody can watch the documentary, which is an hour long. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it takes you through the, all the ups and downs of trying to start out a business and get it off the ground. And it's just exactly like making a film. You have your moments where you're thinking, what a bad idea this was. Oh my gosh, I'm going to go insane. But that's, that's what all creative processes are like. You have your highs and your lows and you just get through them. And, uh, so anyway, on the, on the internet, on YouTube, you can watch the documentary. You don't even have to buy it. And you can, uh, watch the 15 different episodes on how I build guitars. And you can also, listeners, head to the website. It's called restrung.tv. Before we close, I want to ask my fab three questions I always ask my guests. So we'll start with the Donald okay. question, which is, as a child, what Disney film was one of your favorites? Uh, Pinocchio. I, I, I saw Pinocchio when I was a little kid, about four years old, and it was real to me. I, I couldn't. I couldn't figure out what was real and what wasn't. And I, and I wanted to keep going back to the theater to see it over and over again. And I think my parents took me three times and then they said, that's enough. But I think there's that magic time when you're about three or four years old, where it is completely real to you. And, that, and it's whatever film you see at the, it's at that magic age. And, and uh, Pinocchio was it for me. And our goofy question, what Disney character besides the Emperor's New Groove characters, do you think would be your best friend if you met them in person? Golly. Um, wow. <laughs> That's a tough one. Maybe Roger Rabbit. There would never be a dull moment with Roger Rabbit. <laughs> That's right. And he's a very loyal friend, too. Yeah, he is. He and is. our Mickey question, if I asked you to name any Disney song at this very moment... What immediately comes to mind? Um, Fantasia with the, with the Sorcerer's Apprentice. That, that, again, I saw Fantasia at a fairly young age. And when Mickey is having his nightmare dream and he's uh, uh, directing the, the pail of water and, and the broom, and all of a sudden everything is being flooded and the craziness of with his, uh, with his Sorcerer's Apprentice hat on, um, that, that's, I love that animation and, um, and that's Mickey at his best to me. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Randall. I, we are welcome oh, to come back welcome. anytime. Hopefully we will talk in another 15 years for the 30th. And, uh, how else can we end by saying boom, baby? <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I enjoyed it.
Demon Llama! Demon Llama? Where? Ah! <laughs>